You know, here's the great thing about our God. Is that he desires to set us free. And we've been talking about this over the last five or six weeks that God is here to break the chains of those things that creep up out of our heart and enslave us. And they don't come from out in the world. They come from us. We need to acknowledge that. They are in us. They are part of the brokenness of who we are. But they come and and they take hold of us and begin to become those slave masters. Even if we allow them many times and, and uh, freely give them reign in our life. But God has called us to stand up and say, from this point on, no longer are you going to be the boss of us. And so we've been talking about this, that, that we need to begin to declare this statement that you are not the boss of me. And uh, begin to say that to things like guilt, to things like envy and jealousy, and anger, and fear, and all of these things that begin to move into our life, we can say, you are not the boss of me any longer. But today we're going to close out this series by looking at the one thing that is probably the hardest to say that. Because the biggest thing that uh, controls us, enslaves us, is something that we cannot usually see, even though it's within us, those other things we can see as separate from us. You know, when we deal with guilt, we, we can understand that the guilt is in me, the anger is within me, the envy, the jealousy, all of those things are within me, but I can separate from myself and I can see that I am struggling with that and I can say, I, I don't want you to be in control of them anymore. But this thing that we're talking about today that controls is very hard. We do not separate it from us, even though it is in us, because here's what it is. It is this statement itself. This statement itself, you are not the boss of me, becomes the boss of us. In fact, this is probably the biggest reason, it is the core reason, where all those other things come from. And it's because this started at the moment of our breaking. At the moment that, that uh, we uh, experienced that cataclysmic separation from God, it all happened because of this statement. You're not the boss of me. But the problem is we are the ones that have said that to God. We know the story in the Garden of Eden, when uh, uh, Adam and Eve were enjoying all the blessings that God had given them, and he said, you can have everything in the garden, just, just one thing, don't eat that one tree, everything else is yours. And of course, what did Satan take advantage of? The one thing that we couldn't have. And he twisted that, that, you know what, it's only because God wants to control you. It's only because he doesn't want you to become like him. Um, that he doesn't want you because if you eat of that, you will become the boss of yourself. You don't have to worry about a God who tells you what to do and what not to do. You can eat of this fruit and have the knowledge of good and evil. 
You can decide what's right and wrong for yourself. And it was from that choice that that is the core source of everything that breaks us. That everything that enslaves us is because we live in an existence of I will decide. I will control. Even coming to God, it, we make it as if, okay, God, you did this great sacrifice for me. Well, let me think about it. I'll decide whether I want to accept that or not. We've even turned that into something we've done. And so there are many that even deceive themselves in church and, and in their walk for Christ. And yet they are not free in the way that God wants. And we're going to look at this slave master today, which it really is us. And it's not a feeling within us. It's, it, it, is, it is our actual will. And that's why our will is hard to see that as something we're battling. And yet we can see it. We, we see examples of that, that even Paul recognized that, that he battled with his own will. But here's what it really is. It's self-righteousness. In other words, and now when I talk about that word self-righteousness, many times we, we view self-righteousness as judgment. You know, when you judge someone, when you think you're better, you're just being self-righteous. That is an expression of it, but that's not really self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is simply the fact that I'll decide what's right. I will uh, control my path, and, and control is really the essence behind self-righteousness. It is self-determination. I'll determine how I'm going to serve you, God. God, I love you, and I need you, and, and, and I'll give you 98%, but that 1%, there's a 1% bit that I've got to control. And I think with all of us, we are all dealing with this. There, there, we need to stop trying to hide behind this self-righteousness that I'm okay. Because again, it's who says you're okay? I say I'm okay. Um, and usually that uh, shows up in other things because we want other people to say that we're okay too. So we find people that will agree with us that I'm okay. And we will surround ourselves with people that will uh, continue to encourage us even if we're going down a wrong road because this is the road I want. And so we will f you can always find someone, which is why social media, uh, you know what? Everyone will have their group on their side even though it is an absolute cesspool of, of separation between people and community and, and compassion that Jesus came to bring. And yet, and yet we feel fine in it because we find enough people say, no, 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 you're fine. Don't let people tell you that. And so we have let this sense of us that we want, which really is the self-righteousness, control us. And we are slaves without even knowing it. Now, we see this process, and it went from the Garden of Eden all the way through the Bible. Because over and over again, uh, we see these examples. Uh, we know that uh, in the days of Noah, everyone was doing so much their own way that they wanted to live their own way. They didn't even want to listen to God, that God said, you know, this is enough. If I let them go, um, uh, you know, they're destroying everything that I've created. And so I'm going to destroy them before they destroy it to a point that's even worse. But then even after Noah, 
We know that Noah came through in his family and Noah himself um, uh, blew it pretty much right after uh, coming out of the ark and then they multiplied and, and more people and then of course uh, we come to the Tower of Babel that people again, once again doing, I don't, we don't need to listen to God, we can make uh, the, the world a better place the way we want and again God had to step down and said if I don't they are going to bring destruction uh, on the things that are still left that are beautiful in this world. And he scattered them across the world. And again, we come to the point, finally he said, I'm going to set in place the, pattern, the, the, the plan of redemption. And he brings Abraham and he begins to start the, the process of this long journey to freeing us from this mastery. But yet, we see that God tells us that, that throughout history, this is always going to be the problem. We see that even as Abraham's seed grew into a great nation, and God delivered them out of Egypt, um, and brought them into their own land, and even after bringing judgment on those that had to wander for 40 years until they died off and the next generation came in, because again... They would decide uh, what they would do, not God, even though he brought them to the promised land. He said, no, we're not going to go in. Finally, he brought them in, and we see in Judges um, that after the blessing of coming into the promised land, God gave them uh, fruit and victory. Uh, they, they overcame enemies that they could have never overcome on their own. And yet throughout the book of Judges, and Judges is probably the saddest book in the whole Bible, that God had given his people the promise of freedom, their own land, um, uh, that he was blessing them with. And yet over and over in the book of Judges, they kept turning away from the very one who blessed them. And it makes this statement in Judges, which this is the very last uh, uh, statement in the book of Judges because it just got worse and worse. It slowly deteriorated. But this statement summed it up. Why did society keep deteriorating? Why does culture always just get worse? It gets better and then it gets worse. It's this statement. Judges 21, 25 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, they didn't want someone that God would give them. They wouldn't make God their king. When God said, if you will let me be your master, if you will let me be uh, boss of you, you will have blessing and life. I will be your protector and I will be the source of pleasure. But they didn't want that king and they all did what was right in their own eyes. Isn't that us today? I'm not going to have every, anyone tell me what to do. That's all you have to do is open the social media, and that's all you see. That's really what it comes down to. Governor's not going to tell me what to do. President's not going to tell me what to do. How dare someone that God has put in control, and we live, I don't know, I don't care what you think about our leaders, the Bible clearly says that every leader God has put in control. doesn't mean we have to agree with what they do, but we humble under what God has given us. But yet we say, no one's going to be the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. It goes on 
after judges, and then they got a king for themselves of their own people, not the king that God wanted, uh, because God didn't want them to ask for a human king, but finally God said, okay, I will give you a king, even though, understand, it's going to bring lots of problems in your life, and, and we come all the way to Solomon, um, who was the second king after David, who was the only true righteous king, and even he led them into problems. Solomon gives us this insight into us. And in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, he tells us this. There is a way that seems right to man. See, we all do what we think, and we think we are sure, but this is the right thing. Come on, God's given me a brain to think, and I, this, is, I'm, this is the right thing. But here's what it says. But its end is in death. You see, we think we know what's right. We, we, we are adults. We've grown up. I, I can have common sense. There's a way that seems right to man, but its way ends up in death. I don't care what you do, our own way will end up in death. That's just the way it is. We are broken. You see, it comes down to this, no matter what you think you are doing, no matter what your opinion, you need to understand we are all broken. All of our opinions lead to death. All of them. You see, the reason that happens, the reason you cannot be the boss of yourself, the reason you cannot say, I can decide. You see, that was the whole lie of the Garden of Eden, that, that you can know what's right and wrong. But now we move forward, and then Isaiah, again, reveals the truth of the matter in Isaiah 64. And he says, we need to understand this, but we are all like an unclean thing. All of our righteousness, in other words, the best that you can do, the very best, and there are good things that we do. Every kindness, every compassion, every good thing, it is like filthy rags before God. The best thing that you can do, the best thing that you've seen other people do, that is like filthy rags before a, a righteous God. You see, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, now look at this, like the wind have taken us away. We get swept up in what we think is right, and even though that righteousness is as filthy rags before God, it still sweeps us away. We get caught up in it, because that's just the way sin works in us. We need to recognize this. You know, we see this is a natural tendency because we see this, uh, even in kids, this desire for control. When you go to the uh, uh, grocery store, um, uh, nowadays, of course, now when I was a kid, they didn't have this. But even as, when I was a kid, you know, you wanted to push the cart, right? Let me push the cart, right? Let me push the cart. Now they have the little carts with the little, looks like little cars for the little kids to sit in in the front, uh, with their little wheel, and, and you know, you watch them, they love because I want to drive, right? I want to be in control. Even from a child, there is something within them that we want to be in control. I want to determine the direction of my life. And here's the thing, if you think about that little kid in the, in the uh, shopping cart in the front with the, uh, you know, he's steering, and for a while as you're walking through the, the, the um, uh, grocery store, 
They'll turn it and the sh- cart will turn. And they like, see, I'm in control. You know, they even think they're in control. And there has to come a moment, maybe as the, kid, the child grows up, when they realize, me turning that wheel really didn't do anything. Right? There's a realization that I'm really not in control, though for a while it may seem like I'm in control. Because there's times when you're a kid, you turn it, and wow, the cart turned. That was me. No, it wasn't you. And that's how in our life, sometimes we think we're controlling our life. But I'm telling you, it's not. God is in control. But there comes a point in time where this is what God says. If we continue to think that we're in control, at some point, he's going to say, fine, you take the will. The problem is that will doesn't do anything. It'd be like in that shopping cart and it's going and we think we're in control, but it's coming to a flight of stairs. And all of a sudden, we want to turn, but you know what? You have already set your path. And your turning the wheel will not avoid it. That is what our life is like. We control our life until at some point it's going to lead in death. We're going to go over the edge thinking that we had control. And then finally at the last minute, the worst realization is going to come into your mind. I really had no control of my destination. You see, in Romans... Paul tells us this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even though they think they're doing what's right, they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know that someone else is in control. I want to believe that I'm in control because I'm just loving life. And we enjoy all those things that we're doing. And it says that the wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has been trying to show us over and over, we need to, we need to turn over the will to him. He shows us power, but we just don't want to see it. Even though we will have no excuse, we will not be able to say, God, you didn't step in and save me and I didn't know. He's going to say, no, you knew. And we have ignored it. Because this is what happened. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, we've known God and we've seen his glory but we've chosen not to surrender. We'll surrender a little bit. You see, this is, and this is the, 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 the scary part, is we think I surrendered to God, but we didn't really surrender. I'm going to go through the motions, God, so that maybe you'll be happy and think. See, we think we're, real, here's what we think we're doing. I'm going to make God think he's in control of me. So that, hey, see, God, you are in control of me. <laughs> are we that dumb that God can't see through that? Because it says, our foolish hearts have been darkened. I love this. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We come to church, we go through the motions, self-righteousness. 
I'm good with God. God, me and God are tight. We've got come into agreement, but yet we have fooled ourselves because he's not the boss of us. No one's the boss of us. I'm the boss of me. And we stand on that word, you're not the boss of me. It goes on in verse 24. It says, therefore God has given them up to their uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies even among themselves. God gives us up. If there comes a point that we just demand that I will be the boss of me, no one's going to be the boss of me because these things are important. My friends are going to be important. They're going to be the boss of me. I, I want them. You know, my, my job is, is important. God, I got to serve, but you know I got to do this. You know, my, my ambitions, my dreams, you know, I, I, I'm going to uh, 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 make the team. I'm going to make the, the band. I'm going to do all these things, become the boss of us. Even though we give lip service to God, God's not the boss of us. Our schedule is the boss of me. God, I can serve you without coming to church. You know, church is, is you, know, you know what that is? There's not, whether we can sit here and argue doctrine about the church, what it really is is I just refused to let God be the boss of me. Let's be honest. That's the, the real crux behind that. But it's not, and here's where self-righteousness shows up in two different ways. There's those type of people that just, you know, say, God, I don't want to serve you. I'm going to do what's right. We're going to enjoy life. We're going to live and be fruitful and, and just have all the pleasure that there is. Now, we know those are the ones that, you know, we say, oh, yeah, those are the bad people. That's the ones that Paul's talking about here in Romans that, uh, you know, they, they go out and uh, do all the things with no shame. But he goes to chapter 2, and he says, it's not just those people. Here's the problem. Therefore, he says, you, and he's talking to the Jews, you are also inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judges. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you practice the same things. You just do it in a godly context we just use God as our our cover but yet we are still not making him the boss of us he says you're just as bad so don't judge others that do all these other things when you're just self-righteous you just do it in your kindness because you know many times the kindest person we do that but we're doing it for ourselves because it makes me feel good, because I want to be uh, known as that. I'm building my own self-esteem. But this is what it says. There is, there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law. But as many have sinned with the law, in other words, you, there are those outside the church, yeah, they're going to get punished. But there's those in the church, if you have the same heart, you're facing the same judgment. You see, this same self-righteousness shows up in religion or piety or being very moral as well as it is being wicked and unruly and just going your own way. Because here's the thing. It all comes down to who's the boss of you. And we have chosen to go our own way. So how do we deal with this? How do we break the chain 
of this self-determination that has gripped us and has become the slave master that we don't even realize is sending us to a place of destruction. And God does not want us to wait to that last second and realize that we've been turning a useless steering wheel. He doesn't want us to end up that way. So Paul gives us that same cry of God. Paul speaks for God to the church in Philippi, and he says, you're doing the same thing, and I, need to, I want to warn you because I'm telling you, you need to break the chain of mastery of self-righteousness over your heart before it's too late. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at the solution. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, in other words, who wants these things? We all want these things. We want consolation. We want redemption. We want comfort and love and mercy. We want uh, to find life through God's gift. Okay? If there's anything that you desire this, he says, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In other words, we've got to, if you want to experience all that God has, we've got to begin to come to this, this same reasoning that God has set before us. And here's what it is. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than himself. He says this. You see, they were, they were fighting. They were, they were going down the path of destruction. Everyone was living for themselves in this church. Everyone was wanting my way. We need to do it this way. And so they were butting heads with other people who said, no, you got to do it this way. And even those in agreement uh, in their own little cliques, were singing kumbaya together, but yet they were still living in self-righteousness. And he says, let not this be done this way. Now, I love this word that he used. He says, let nothing be done. Here's what we got to break. Through selfish ambition or conceit. What is selfish ambition or conceit? The word there in some of your translations, it's vain glory, vain conceit. Uh, the word that he uses, and in fact, this is the only place in the Bible he uses this word. Let nothing be done. In other words, break the rule of uh, this in your heart. And this word that he uh, uses, uh, let me pull it up here. I'm not a Greek major, is kinodoxis. Kinodoxis. Don't live your life in kinodoxis. Kinodoxis is, is from the word kino, which means to empty, to be empty. And doxis, which is like doxology, we've heard that, which is glory. Um, so he says, don't live your life out of glory emptiness. Okay? Because here's the problem. Here's what drives self-determination. We are all empty inside. From the moment we broke in the Garden of Eden, we were created with a space within us to shine the glory of God. We were built in the image of God. We were 
given life through the breath of God. But when we chose to say, I will determine my own way, we lost the glory of God within us. And so we live in this emptiness of glory. So I'm telling you, the drive of all of our lives, and you think about it, everything you do is to refill the glory in our life. And is that not Christ? We all want glory. We want the glory of pleasure of life. I want the glory of happiness. I want the glory of other people's approval. You know what? Uh, uh, you know, whether we play sports, whether we play music, whether we work hard, we do it for glory. Uh, because even if it's the glory of the feeling that I feel of accomplishment or the glory of other people saying, that was a great job. If we're parents, we try and fill our life with glory with our kids. At work, we try and fill glory from our paycheck. And we measure the glory by how much we achieve or how many friends we have. And so we live in this emptiness of glory. It's this vain conceit, selfish ambition. And so therefore I seek for myself. I live for myself. And it can hide very very uh, uh, subtly under kindness, but it's really vain conceit. We, we can be kind to others because we get glory from that. People say, well, isn't she so kind? That's the nicest person. And you know what? That can be just as damning as someone that's out drinking themselves into a stupor. You're, what? How can we measure? Because it's, it is self righteousness so he says don't do anything you've got to avoid this type of life it's an emptiness what we need here's what he's going to say the only way to escape the things that lead us to death is to not grasp for them but the problem is as long as we're empty we can't help but grasp for them let's put it this way if you are hungry, you're hungry, you're empty, and you're walking down uh, uh, the, 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 the walkways in the mall or at Costco, every other aisle there's a, you know, would you like a sample? No, I don't want to, but if you are hungry, you, yes, I want a sample, and you grab it, even if, I know I shouldn't do this. Have you ever been on a diet or something? I know I shouldn't, but there's a point that you're just so hungry, I'm just going to take a little right? When you're empty, you're going to indulge. But how many, have you, have you ever been full? You're just full and you walk through it now, right? It almost turns you off. I'm full. There's no desire. The only way to stop living and empty and trying to get glory for ourselves is to begin to fill ourselves. You see, here's the only source of freedom is to be full. When you are full, you see, all of a sudden, the temptations do not pull on you. Why do you have such a hard time? Because I'm telling you, you're letting yourself get empty. Paul says there's times where I know I don't want to do it, but I keep doing what I don't want to do. You know why? Because I, I got empty. And there's things I should do, but I don't do them because I was doing something else. He says, don't live constantly in the ups and downs of vain conceit. Because we're empty. 
and we try to replace that glory in any other way we can. We do it through church. We do it in our jobs, in our friends, in our pursuits, in our sports. You're trying to fill an emptiness that could never fill because it was not meant for those things. It was meant for God. And nothing will fill it but God in our life. So this is what he says. In verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it would have not been anything uh, for Jesus to uh, walk in all the glory of God because he was God. Okay, it, it, you cannot say that he was stealing anything from God because it was his. He was the very nature of God, in the very form of God. There was no problem to take advantage of those things because they were his. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. So here's the thing. The only way that we can break this life of trying to fill our life with these false glories, he says that we need to have the same mind of Christ. We need to follow Christ's example. What was Christ's example? Now, Christ was filled, but he was filled with the right thing. We're filled with the wrong things. We are filled with things that make us more hungry. We're filled with cotton candy. We fill it and fill it and fill it, and nothing's there. It just melts away, right? But we think we're full of that. But what did Jesus do? Jesus said he emptied himself. Even though he didn't need to, he was full of God. He emptied himself. And became like us. And he offered himself in obedience to God. Even to the point of death. He gave himself for what God wanted. This is why Jesus said, if you want life, here's what you need to do. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Until you empty yourself of those things that are killing you and begin to fill yourself. What did he fill himself? Jesus filled himself with obedience to God. He filled himself with a desire to please God. God, I so want to please you in fact, I am so hungry for you, God, that I will obey you even to the cross. And until we do the same, we will never find life. If we will empty ourselves, 
empty yourself of those things, those vain glories that you think you need in your life. Until you empty yourself of what you think you need from friends, what you think you need from the job. You empty yourself and you begin to long for God in such a way that you lay yourself in obedience. You see, it is not until we submit ourselves in obedience to God that, God, I want you and I give you my life. This is what Jesus did. And because Jesus emptied himself and sought the favor of God with such fervor that he obeyed to God's glory, it says to the glory of God that everything he did, he didn't care what other people thought about him. He didn't even care what he thought he was doing. He said, I only want the glory of God, that when he sought the glory of God, even though it brought him to the cross, it says that God exalted him, that he became full he was fuller, I don't even know if this is how this can be, but he was fuller than he was before, and he was God before. But now it says that, that at his name, all the glory of God resides, and he found fullness. We can find freedom when we empty ourselves. If we will have the mind of Christ that Jesus I am going to seek only you. When we live for Jesus, when Jesus becomes the boss of us, when we begin to say, I'm not going to tell anyone else you're not the boss of me. In fact, it says in this same verse, it says that you need to live for other people. Don't live for yourself. In fact, even become a slave to others. That you please them before yourself. If they think that, don't fight with them and say, you're crazy, I'm going to do this, and how, who dare you tell me? You know what, even if they're wrong, that's okay. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my, my rights up for yours. That's why it, it, it just shocks me when I see all the banter on social media of Christians standing up for rights and putting, you know what? Jesus laid himself down to be crucified by people, not to demand his rights. And yet we do things that are not the way of God. I'm not talking about going into sin or anything, but you know what I'm saying. Do we seek the favor of God more than anything else? When we do that, it will break the power of self-righteousness. And I'm going to tell you, when you humble yourself and begin to maybe empty yourself, and that means you might get kicked off the team. It is better to be kicked off the team and to enjoy the smile of your God than the greatest accomplishments you could ever have. Because I'm going to tell you, when you humble yourself, God lifts you up. And I'm going to tell you, there is no accomplishment in life that's worth it to lose it all. Jesus himself said, what gains you if you gain the whole world? And you lose your soul. You were created for a life that is deeper than this world. And God says, just trust me. It's coming. We close with the verse that we've been reading this whole series. And it says this, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what do I mean by that? It doesn't mean just come to me like a, 
a vending machine and say, okay, yeah, God, give me that rest, come on. No, this is what Jesus says. By coming to me, he says, take my yoke upon you. You see, become my servant. You see, a yoke goes on the ox. In other words, get down on your knees and let me put my leash on you. That's what it is. But it's because, God, you are the master that I need. I recognize that, that this leash that you put on me by me saying you are my boss, whatever you ask of me, God, whatever, I will do it, and I will find pleasure in that. He says, if you take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but it only comes under my yoke. And until we say, Jesus, you are the boss of me, then we will always be living in the slavery of self-righteousness. But Jesus says, come to me. And whatever you lose by emptying yourself, I will refill and you will be full at the right time. Let's bow our heads.